hopefully everybody's at least heard of network effect, which is when Uber gets more riders, which gets more drivers, which lowers the wait time, which gets more riders, which gets more drivers, and so on and so on and so forth. What I talk about in Detox, Declutter, Dominate is network effect for mere mortals, which is you don't have to be Tesla. You could be a roofing company and you can still build network effect moats around your business and they don't look like much until they're actually dug. And then you have a definitive advantage and then you can do another moat and another moat and be seriously immune from competition. This is Superfast Business with James Schramko. James Helping you build your business super fast. James Schramko here. Welcome back to Superfast Business. This is episode 791. And today we're having a chat to an industry icon, Perry Marshall. Welcome to the call. Great to be here, James. And you're an industry icon too. So this is an honor. <laughs> we know each other. We have like tons of friends in common. Like I always hear about you from all these other people like Jack Bourne and stuff. So I don't know, maybe you lured Jack to Australia. Is that possible? Not sure. I mean, he's a tremendous guy and we've got clients in common. We have associates in common. Of course, I don't think of myself as an industry icon. You just think of yourself as yourself. But, (laughs) you know, you had such a huge influence at each stage in my pathway. I know I probably covered some of it in episode 290 when we got together last time. But a quick recap for someone listening to this, if they haven't listened to every single one of my episodes, which would be a you know unfair assumption, <laughs> I became aware of your AdWords book when I still had a job. I mean, it was that far back. It was the first internet conference I ever went to in Australia. It would have been about 2006. A friend of mine uh, or this guy I met, I sat at a table with him. And I literally met him at the event had this folder. It was the definitive guide to AdWords, I think he called it. He was raving about it. He told me he was spending some massive amount on paid ads every month. I didn't believe him when he said that because it just sounded unfathomable. I think he was spending each month what I was making each year. And then he loaned this to me overnight and I brought it back the next day and it just flipped my world. And I started running paid ads in the Mercedes-Benz dealership that I was working at. So it was pretty early days. You know, seems like now it was early days. At the time, I thought maybe I'm too late for all of this. So it's funny how perspective changes that. That is very But later on, you still keep uh, having a presence. I looked at your very clean and simple, like blue, gray, and black and white website. You had white papers and service sort of funnels to sell services. And I was really interested in trying to figure out how I could actually have a job online. And your website was the perfect model of what a website should look like to take someone from an inquiry through to a customer. I then followed all the stuff you had with Livingston, which was really the precursor to what everyone now knows as Ask, because Ryan Levesque learned from him. Yeah. So I was like the generation one of that. Mm. I followed your threads through to Kosh and the Star Principle, which I still use for making decisions on my business models. Certainly, of course, it comes up a lot in coaching. And in my own investing, I'm always looking for really good investment opportunities that fit some of that criteria. Mm-hmm. Your books have always been handy. I remember Keith Krantz slid me a copy of one of your books. I think it was Simplify. Oh. Yep. When we're in the Maldives. I think he had a very early copy of it. I read it while I was floating around the Maldives. And it really made me think about making things easier to use and making things more useful. And it's fair to say I've made a lot of the changes I have in my own business as a result of that book. Of course, I loved your other books, 8020. 
it reflected in my own book. I made a whole chapter on the 64-4, which you kind enough to endorse that book. So I know we speak the same language, but you've always been like that senior advisory appearance just at little parts of my journey that have given me a little nudge in that direction. So I like the way you think and I love the stuff you put out there. We've got so many friends and partners in common, but it's such a great opportunity to have a chat. And the irony is um, today we're talking about something that's incredibly short. I mean, you've got a new book out. It's called, I'm going to read the official title, Detox, Declutter, Dominate, How to Excel by Elimination. There you go. Brand new book. You've got a co-author on this one who I believe worked in your organization and he's done a bit of a Mr. X on you by the sound of it. He's taken all your stuff and made it really digestible. And the book was so short that when your office sent me across a copy, I actually emailed and said, is this the actual book? Is it very short? And you said, yes, it's just 36 pages. And I imagine you're getting that reaction a fair bit. So why don't we just start there? I think it's actually brave. I think it's brave because, you know, I'm known for being direct and concise. You wouldn't know from my podcast intro here, but (laughs) the common feedback I get when I'm working on a book with a publisher is you got to give us more stuff and they try and fluff it up or puff it up. I'm not talking about Kelly Exeter, by the way. I'm talking about other people who have helped me. Kelly's good at, at stringing together my books into something that's super digestible. Like I want someone to go through the book and their notes is almost exact replica of the book. But how brave is it to publish such a short book and what has been the feedback on that? You've already got plenty of ratings, at least in the Amazon marketplace, I can see. So people are buying it, which is great. So this book started out as a 50,000 word book, which is about 150 pages. (laughs) And I slaved over it for months and I sent it to Robert Scrobe and he's like, I'll be back. Okay. And a few weeks later, he sends it back. And he goes, so Perry, I got rid of the 80% of this book that you don't need. It's 8,000 words. I'm like, ah! But he really had done that, okay? So he 80-20 to the 80-20 guy, which, (laughs) you know, sometimes you need that to happen. And what he had done was he had chopped it down to just the most absolutely essential, like not a spare wasted word. And then he said, and I'll be back again. And he came back again later with a bunch of graphics and illustrations and charts. And he's like, Perry, this is your book. And he says, people are incredibly beleaguered and overloaded and fire hoses pointed out their mouths and social media and elections and pandemics and everything else. Like, this is it. And I would have never come up with this myself. Okay, this is the power of a co-author. And furthermore, the genesis of the idea was Rob said, we need to figure out like what is the absolute irreducible essence of Planet Perry? What do you actually want your clients and your members to do and understand? You need to reduce it down to seven things. It actually took us about two years to figure out what these seven things are. And so there was a tremendous amount of effort in coming up with something that was so simple in 36 pages. Here's what this book really is. It's two things. First of all, if there's only seven things that you could know about business and they have to be true, whether you make $10,000 a year or whether you make $10 million a year. What are the seven things? And the seven things 
have to be just as true in 2050 as they are in 2020. So in other words, from cradle to grave in your entrepreneurial career, what are the seven things? And that's what this book is. You know, I've been teaching business stuff for 20 years. I've been doing business longer. I've been through every pink Kool-Aid machine. I've been to every seminar. I've read who knows how many books. I've dealt with thousands of clients. These are the seven things. And I have Rob to thank for chiseling it down to, like, there is not a wasted word in this book. Yeah, I was going to ask, and you've answered already, you know, if it is a case of that famous um, quote about the letter. Sorry, the letter's so long, I didn't have time to write a shorter one. I expected this was a big process. Well, yeah, Brian Tracy says, if you want me to speak all day, give me five minutes to prepare. If you want me to speak for five minutes, it'll take all day to prepare. That is 80-20, yeah. right? And I think, you know, Winston Churchill said something very similar about speeches. Like, if you want a one-minute speech, it'll take me two weeks to chisel it down. And so that's what we did. And so, you know, even if you don't like to read, you'll like this book. And you can refer back for the rest of your life. What sort of feedback are you getting from your audience about the length of the book? They like it. I haven't had anybody complain. I don't think anybody is needing more heft, more weight, more actual extra modules. Now, there's a bunch of bonus material in this book. It takes you online to a bunch of different resources like quizzes, tools, calculators, all kinds of things. But people have been just really delighted that, wow, you know, well, I've never really seen a book like this. It almost looks like a workbook or a coloring book, but it's a very serious. It's definitely very visual. I reckon the only people who might get upset by it would typically be an author because of ego mm. and a publisher because it doesn't fit the mold. It would be hard for them to pitch or to put into a bookstore or something. You know. Well, that's why we self-published it. Yeah. And so, yeah, maybe a category breaker. But really, this is the roadmap to the life that you want. The entrepreneurial life is wonderful. But it can get excessive because the ideal reader of this book is the workaholic. Yeah. You know, the opening chapter is Confessions of a Complexaholic. <laughs> and it's my story of despite being the 80-20 guy, you know, I'm the guy who made this business that was too complicated, had too many moving parts, too many employees, too many products, too many systems, too many ideas. And I was in love with all of them. And my brother, who's a president of my company, shows up. So it's February, cold winter day. I'm on the phone in my office in the afternoon. And I look through my glass French door windows. And he's in the next room, unannounced from Nebraska, which is 500 miles away. I'm like, why is the president of my company here unannounced? Uh, so I hang up. Brian, hello, what are you doing here? He's like, we need to talk, Perry. And this was an intervention. Yeah. Perry, we have too many expenses. We have not enough revenue. We have too many employees, too many projects. And I spent the next eight hours, like probably till 11 o'clock at night, bouncing to, we're at my house, we're at restaurants, we're at bars, we're driving around, we're arguing, we're talking. And I arm wrestled with him for the whole rest of the day. Like, no, Brian, you don't understand. 
You don't know how smart this is. You don't know how awesome this next thing's going to be. You know, you and your naive, right? Well, three months later, things are not improving. They're just getting worse. And he was right. He was right all along. And I wouldn't listen to him. And now I had a real problem. (laughs) I think what you're talking about, uh, a lot of us can relate to. I think you came up with your solutions because you had the problem. (laughs) And I think I can relate to it too. I would have been classified as someone who worked too much. I was working probably seven days a week. I had an extraordinary work ethic through my whole career to the point where I'd even be rapidly demolishing something in the lunchroom while I'm trying to get out of there as quickly as possible. Towards the very end of my career, I'd gotten a lot of leverage in my job. I'd built systems and I'd fixed a lot of the things. But as soon as I had my own business, of course, it was like pedal like crazy. I needed to make sure I put daylight between the idea of ever having to go back to work. And only in the last half of my online episode have I really got that leverage in it. That was what enabled me to write my own book, Work Less, Make More, because you have to go through it and then solve it to be able to help other people in this case. That's why everything I'm reading of yours, it's like I'm just nodding my head. Yep. Either I've seen it from you. I mean, even your bobsled runs. I remember when you were having people to your house for a mastermind type thing. I decided to try that too. And I also read it that Joe Sugarman used to do it in some barn on his farm. Mm. I thought that's a good business. I'd like to try that. And then I've ended up moving that to the Maldives, which is it's having a year off, <laughs> maybe two, who knows. But oh. it's really interesting how we know we're taking on too much. We know we're too complicated. But I think the entrepreneurial side of us can always see the good in everything, the positive. We're this eternal optimist on how good we could make things. And it takes a lot of guts to cut stuff and to delete stuff and to remove stuff. And I'd say this year has been a big opportunity for a lot of people who aren't traveling for the first time in at least a decade. They've actually sat around in their own ecosystem and thought, wow, just like I've never had this space or the routine to be able to actually look and introspect about what my environment's like. And also, I think most people have had cause to review their business model. I certainly have. I've tuned my business model. I've come up with an entire new business to the side of the one I've got as a result of the changes in the market. And I'm sure you've probably made some changes too. But this is the time where seven steps to finding your gleaming sword at the bottom of the swamp might be useful. I wonder if we might go through a couple of steps. Yeah, let's do it. I think that what we're in, there's a word I've heard people use. It's we're in a sala. And it's S-C-L-A-H. And that is a word that's in the Psalms of the Bible when you're supposed to pause before you read the next section. Okay? You know, it's like a silent space between two musical pieces. And you're supposed to contemplate what you just read. And I think we're in a forced contemplation. And I think that some people are going to come out of this and go, you know what? I was forced to do it. I did it. I contemplated. I reconsidered. I twisted the Rubik's Cube. I stripped all my ideas down to the engine blocks and rebuilt them. Nothing got unquestioned. And there will be other people. I binged on Netflix. You know, I watched every miniseries known to man. I drank more. I slept more. I slid into, you know, a bunch of bad habits and now I wake up and I'm getting kicked in the ass. I got to go back to work and I'm in worse shape than ever. 
And there's like two kinds of people. Yeah, I think a lot of people listening to this will be most likely to be the first type. I would hope so. It's definitely the theme of what we talk about here. I've I've been sharing a lot of the journey and the changes. 2020 has been a really fascinating year for me. And it also, I've said this before, but a lot of it depends on where you live. Your environment can be entirely different. I mean, it's almost incomprehensible, but we're in board shorts and flip-flops here. We're going down to the beach and there's virtually no COVID and business is almost as per normal. The real main difference is just not traveling overseas yeah, because we're an island country and we've contained this for now. And of course, that can change quickly. But then other countries are decimated or having, you know, chaotic elections and so forth, which <laughs> even spills into our feed. Yeah. It's been an exhausting year, I imagine, for people. I really like step number one, which is using Renaissance time to gain discernment and clarity. I think this is almost a Renaissance year. Yes, it is. Yeah. Bingo. You said it. So what's Renaissance time? That is my word for what you should do instead of what most people do. So the best way to start your day is shower, cup of coffee, sit down, no distractions, no social media, nobody pulling on your strings, and you think through your day, you pray, you meditate, you write, you have open space. This time is exclusively for you, and you're going to get yourself sorted out, and you're going to put on your spiritual armor, if you will, before you begin your day. And then you hit the ground running. Now, we can talk later about what you actually do when you hit the ground running, because most people do that wrong, too. <laughs> I want to make a huge contrast to this is so what, what do most people do? Well, they reach across their nightstand and they pull a device into their bed and they start scrolling through Facebook, scrolling through email. And their day starts with fire alarms and people tugging on their skirts and tugging on their shirt tails and banging on their cage, right? And now you've started your whole day in reaction mode. And then you slurp down your Cheerios while you're watching CNN and you watch the world burn. Terrible, terrible, terrible way to start your day. It sets you up for failure sets you up for unproductivity, it switches on your cortisol, and your day is ruined before it's even started. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I've definitely experimented a lot with this, and I'm sure each person has their own little formula. I have three days a week where I do actual work. Mm. Again, I drew a lot from a Richard Koch interview I heard. He works very little, from what I gather. Yes. He's compressed his time into short bursts. But I've blocked down to now 10 hours a week that I actually do work from external appointments like this. Like this is an external thing where I have to be present for it. But the rest of the week is my thinking time and time off. So I've got so much space, so much white space. And the fact that I surf every day, which is extremely analog, is a built-in no distraction zone. I love that the most. So And I look forward to it. Very passionate about that hobby. It's probably not practical in Chicago. <laughs> he would have to come up with something else, <laughs> maybe, maybe bobsledding or something. I'm not sure. But And then there's productivity experts who say, look, you know, forget journaling and meditation and all that. You should just attack your most important project first thing. So you'll hear different points of view, but I expect what you're talking about has worked well for you and the people who you're talking with. I don't know anyone who would argue that it's a great idea to get on your phone, get pulled into Facebook, look at CNN, or, you know, could anyone say that eating Cheerios is a good idea? <laughs> because that's, that's the most outrageous thing you said, I think. <laughs> 
I think most people now hopefully are switching on to eating a bit better and spending a little longer on the planet. That's great. Okay, so getting your discernment and clarity, that's starting off right. Step number two, this is a very appealing one, of course, make your business two times more profitable with the 80-20 focus. Now, I would be shocked if anyone listening to this podcast hasn't now heard the 80-20, whether they've read your book, my book, or the four-hour work week. But I think, you know, you've spent so much time in this and your work's even been published in the Harvard Business Review on this topic. I know you're super passionate about it. I'd love to get your insights on this step because like coming from basically the right hand of the Kosh himself, (laughs) who I think, you know, he's one of your super idols, right? Oh, yeah. 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 You've derived a lot of your thoughts from him, but you've expanded it and applied it to our world, which is, you know, that's where I think you've carved a big piece of space. So give us that one. So let's talk about elimination. There is this thing by Limbertine called the 2120 rule. And it says that 20% of what you sell or what you do makes 120% of your profit. That's the top. The bottom sucks 20% of your profit and pulls your what would have been 120% down to the 100% of what you actually make. Okay, And so what that means is that there's a bottom 20% of your activity that actually loses money and you are going backwards when you accept the check from the client. So a percentage of your clients lose money. A percentage of your products that you ship, you're taping dollar bills to every box that goes out. A percentage of the services that you provide are a net negative. And if you just stopped making the product, stopped offering the service, stopped serving the client, stopped having the employee by fire them, right? You fire the client, you will make more money and you will do less instantly. And this is true virtually all the time. It doesn't matter what business you're in. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. You're losing money on something that you're doing and you don't need to do it. Now, you have to do a real cost accounting to get a full picture of what you're losing money on. But you already know right now, like if you do taxes for a living, there are five clients that you know you're losing money by doing their tax returns because they send you this giant box of receipts and they're totally disorganized and it takes you weeks to figure it all out. You only made $300. And so the first 80-20 is what are you going to stop doing? And mostly it's just giving yourself permission to stop. I wish I could put a bullet point on this. Like This is so profound and so powerful. And it's also one of the easiest ones to do it. I'm going to guess a reason why people don't do it, apart from the fact that they may not be aware of that principle, is the issue of sunk cost. Do you find, uh, you know, common objections to this when you tell people to stop doing something? I'm sure they have a lot of excuses like old Perry with Brian. (laughs) That's exactly what my problem was. I mean, I was so invested and I'm so excited about all these things, right? (laughs) And then on top of that, like all these employees, I've trained them. I've spent all this money. You know, they know how to do all these things. And look, we had to do it very carefully. We cut our staff at that time, probably about 30%. And, you know, it's one thing, like it's easy to chop your staff 3% 
or 5%. All right, I got 20 people or contractors or whatever. Yeah, oh yeah, that one, yes, get rid of them. Your wife's been telling you to get rid of them for two years, and you finally just get rid of them. That's pretty easy. But when you're cutting 30%, man, you better be really careful. You're going to cut muscle or bone instead of fat. You're going to lose something that you can't get back. And now you have another problem. Okay. So, you know, the more you're cutting, the more surgical you have to be if you want anything to be left. Right. And so I was very emotionally attached to all of this stuff. And I had all these plans like, well, you know, I really, really want to do this next year and I won't be able to like, well, okay, so you're not going to do it next year. So you just have to swallow your pride and look, sunk cost has nothing to do with future earnings. Yeah. This is such an important one. I've faced this crossroads many times. I used to put up my business on a whiteboard a lot. It's very, very important to point out something you're saying. I just want to reinforce this. You have to have your data to make these good decisions. If you just throw a dart at the dartboard, it's just going to land anywhere. You could make a horrific mistake and accidentally cut a customer that might appear to lose money, but is responsible for the second or the third sale or something else. So you could mm-hmm. be very careful to check the ecosystem. But I'm thinking about many times where I've turned off an income stream to swing for a, a better one. Like I turned off an affiliate promotion for software that I used to promote. I think at the time I switched it off, it was somewhere between five and $10,000 a month. But I felt it was no longer the best solution for the market. And I, in turn, replaced it with a website service. And I built my website development business off the back of switching recommendations for my clients. And it turned out great, which I ended up selling. I'm thinking about a more recent one. I have very high-level coaching program, Silver Circle, and I made a decision in the last few months to stop taking new customers for that program because my revenue share deals have taken off, which I know you're also into as well. (laughs) So many parallels. And because those revenue share deals are so good, I decided to cut what is a really lucrative business. I mean, $3,000 per month clients coming in every month. I turned it off for new applicants because I needed to reallocate that time to my other products. But the risk was that I would just drop the income. But as it turns out, I redirected my focus to super fast business, which actually doubled in October. Wow. So I found the money back within two weeks of making the decision. But it was a data-based decision based on things like effective hourly rate, on the difficulty and joy factors of the clients versus the potential long-term rewards of where else I could invest that money. These are things that dance around some of your points. I know you're nodding your head because I'm speaking the same language here, but it takes balls to do that, to chop a big income stream to start a new one. But this is where the time went. In my case, I just knew this was draining my calendar. And that's actually become the most vital thing. And I think we're going to bump up against that one probably in step three. So maybe it's a good time to talk about that one. Yes. So step three is earn $1,000 an hour, at least one hour a day with 80-20 time. And most people don't realize you say $1,000 an hour. Like, you know, I had ads disapproved because I was talking about making $1,000 an hour. Well, hang on a second. Okay, so let's say that you're Helen, and Helen is a $15 an hour receptionist at a dentist office, and somebody phones in, and they need $10,000 of dental reconstruction, and Helen puts them on hold for two minutes, and then she picks up two minutes later, and they're gone because they didn't like being on hold. 
Helen just lost $10,000 in two minutes. How many dollars an hour is that? Well, it's $300,000 an hour. Helen lost $300,000 of revenue per hour in two minutes. So whatever time it takes to make sure that Helen never does that, that the systems are in place, that the phone calls get answered, nobody gets put on hold, and the person gets sent to the right person, whatever meetings, systems, planning, implementation, processes, how much is that time worth? That is easily worth $1,000 an hour because if the system is in place, it will systematically not happen. So don't ever tell me that Helen's time isn't worth a whole lot more than $15 an hour. But if you think of your time as being worth $15 an hour, you will never see that most of the time it's worth nothing and a little bit of the time it's worth huge amounts of money. There's a version of this for everyone. So that's why I have a big chart in this book that shows $10, $100 an hour, $1,000 an hour, $10,000 an hour tasks. And even if you're only making $1,000 an hour for four minutes, it's a very, very big deal because you recognize it and then you're smart. I like it. Now, when I was talking about effective hourly rate, one of the activities is to break it down per business division or business activity. But in this case, you're taking it and breaking it across your task timeline, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is a, a really cool way to dissect it. It just reinforces the idea that not all the time you spend doing things is equal. I mean, I imagine this podcast for us, this will actually be a $1,000 an hour plus activity for me. I hope it is for you. I'm sure everyone listening is going to go and immediately buy the book and probably consider any of your trainings or whatever else you offer. So it'll probably work out well for both of us. Mm -hmm. I'd say my 15-minute meeting with my team each week is easily a high-value activity because that team is the engine for a multimillion-dollar enterprise. And, you know, I value that. That is like a set-in-stone meeting that is uh, absolutely critical. If it comes down to it, my team get the best of me because they are our business and they are the oxygen for it. If you can grasp this point, it's so critical. And of course, in the book is the chart. So you need the book. <laughs> nice. Step four. This is one I really, I got a lot from your book, Perry. Step four is create an irresistible product that's a joy to use by simplifying for me, that manifested in things like improving my onboarding process, segmenting people by the challenge they're having and only showing them the solutions that they look for, getting an app going for my website, which was a tremendous change. I think it improved retention by a massive factor. I can't remember the stats. My friend Jared Robinson over at theappmatch.com, I think he's published it on his site. But it made such a difference to the stickiness of our program because people could access it from their phone. Beautiful design. I've put more effort into design and making things look nicer. But you might speak to what sort of things you've seen that make things more ir irresistible. I mean, everyone probably talks about Apple. That's something we can mostly relate to. Well, just real quickly as we wrap here, in the back of this book, there is a story of Mark McShirley of Roof Simple. And Roof Simple went from $600,000 a year to over $10 million a year in about four and a half years. Now, this is a roofing company. So this is not rocket science. Now, I could talk about Tesla and I could talk about Airbnb and I could talk about Steve Jobs and I do. 
But look, this is roofing. But what did they do? Mark took a ruthless eye to every single step in what happens when somebody wants to buy a roof. What happens when my salesmen go out and sell a roofing job? What happens at the roofing job? And he said, I am going to shave. Like, think of it. I got a chisel. I got sandpaper. I got a drill. I've got like a router. I've got a lathe, like whatever tool you want to think of. I am going to smooth and polish every speed bump out of the process of buying a roof that I possibly can. And I'm going to make it such a pleasure to have a roof bought and installed that when we get done and we shake hands and I ask for the check, that when I say, could you also write a Google review and I hand them an iPad, they're like, absolutely. Yeah, I'll write you a Google review. Okay. I mean, he took a microscope to every single part of it. And this is why a Washington, D.C. roofing company that was $600,000 five years ago, now has 4.8 stars and 300 reviews on Google, which is an immense moat around the castle, right? And what happens when they go to Philadelphia? They're going to have 300 reviews. What happens when they go to Cleveland? They're going to have 400 reviews, okay? This is absolutely huge, and he did it with roofing. There is no service, there is no product where you can't rethink it by saying, how do we shave steps? off of this thing. Nice. I think Jay Abraham talks about everything being a process and then you can optimize each process. Mm-hmm. So making it simpler for the customer, removing friction. Yes. I love it. Well, let's just pass over very briefly. Step five is using the STAR principle. I've read the book of STAR principle. I got the whole concept that the top growing companies grow faster than other companies. Mm-hmm. Give me a paragraph on this one. Well, so STAR principle says that if you're number one in a growing market, you'll make more money than everybody else in the market put together. Perfect. This is Richard Koch's book, STAR principle. And after I discovered STAR principle, I realized that everything I had done that had ever been successful matched the pattern. And this was the simplest way of describing the pattern. And this applies to not only your whole entire business, it applies to individual product lines, it applies to clients, it applies to sub-niches that you're in, it applies to things like Google ads, Facebook ads. It's one of the most powerful things, and it's why this made the list. I mean, every single thing that made the list is really good and really deep and really subtle. So it's really the Pareto principle of market growth. Yes. Perfect. Exactly. It's Who are the 4% of players that are going to make 64% of the profits? That's it. Love it. And it works particularly well with investments, which this year, if anyone's been paying attention, (laughs) you could have done particularly well. It's been a great year for my investment. I'll tell you that. (laughs) It has for me too. Step six, build an impenetrable moat around your business. So just really briefly, hopefully everybody's at least heard of network effect which is when Uber gets more riders, which gets more drivers, which lowers the wait time, which gets more riders, which gets more drivers, and so on and so on and so forth. What I talk about in Detox Declutter Dominate is network effect for mere mortals, which is you don't have to be Tesla. You could be a roofing company, and you can still build network effect moats around your business, and they don't look like much until they're actually dug. 
and then you have a definitive advantage and then you can do another moat and another moat and be seriously immune from competition, which like I think 300 Google reviews. Yes. If your competitor has three. Right. How is anybody going to surpass 300 Google reviews? They're not. Exactly. Step seven, the last one, enjoy freedom to create and reinvent every single day. Feel like we've um, touched on that a little bit, haven't we? We have, but there's another part to this. So Mm -hmm. there's two kinds of renaissance time. There's the reflective renaissance time, which is your morning time. But there's another kind, and that's exploration. I'll just give you the really short version for the workaholics, and it's this. You need to have recreation. If you don't have recreation in your life, you are screwing up. And your recreation needs to be just as stimulating as your work. If you're a hard-driving, creative, type A, make-it-happen person, you're not going to enjoy just playing Scrabble or you know, quietly reading a novel while you sit in a lounge chair. You need sti- – like James – you go surfing every day a surf obsessed i live for surfing number one i'm like an amateur surfer with a business to the side (laughs) yeah okay and that is important because we never talked about this but is it not true you get your best business ideas on the surfboard always like just the process of walking down to the beach with a board under my arm barefoot no phone like i know i've got the next hour or two You know, the biggest, most confronting thing, but the biggest discovery of surfing, you cannot outsource the paddling. You cannot outsource the fear. You have to be responsible for it. Like no one's going to gift it to you. Even if you got towed in on a jet ski, you still have to do the actual thing. So it forces you into yourself. You've got to make a lot of decisions and they're life-dependent decisions. Mm. So you learn yourself. You learn personal mastery of your fear, your commitment, your knowledge, your motivation. It, it reveals everything to you. I see people sometimes out there like screaming, you know, because they're having the worst time ever because they can't do it. I reckon that would show up in every other part of their life. It's such a fascinating insight. Couldn't agree more on point seven. And it's almost the first thing I prescribe for most of the people I coach with. They're just boring Metro drones who have no soul. And I'm like, what's the point? What is the point of all this work? So that what? Like, where does that get you at the end of time with no relationship with your kids? So you've got a fantastic business and you're the man. What else is in your life from that? Right. And see, life can be so much more enjoyable when your recreation feeds your creativity, which gives you enjoyment, which then feeds your business, which enables you to have more recreation. It becomes this virtuous circle and you suddenly find you're a lot more successful than everybody else and you're having more fun. And I'll just finish by saying you alluded to this. One of the signs that you've got your hobby dialed in or your recreation dialed in is you start to realize that it's a metaphor for all of these other serious things that you're trying to do in your life. And you start to, oh my goodness, I am seeing my family dynamics in my surfing. I am seeing my business dynamics in my surfing. Ooh, I had fun figuring out, hey, I need to improve my game in this way. And that metaphor starts circulating. And life is just so much more enjoyable when you do it that way. And you really just have to trust the process that if you keep the creative engines fed and you don't starve them in favor of more work, it's eventually going to come back around and it's going to nourish you. 
What a refreshing podcast, Perry. I appreciate the valuable time you put aside to chat with us today. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. And uh, I just want to invite people, read this 36-page book, Yeah, and it will change your life. I'm absolutely certain about that. And you know, some of the points you've talked about are not commonly known, especially the one about the bottom part of your products or services costing you money. Just simply just chopping them off <laughs> is an instant win. That is a huge thing. I mean, I don't want to take away from the other points, but I'd say that one is not well known. <laughs> it is not well known, no. So go get it. Detox, declutter, dominate, how to excel by elimination with Perry Marshall and Robert Scrobe. Is that how you say it? That's right. Over here, by the way, we say roofing. I'll just translate that for anyone who was wanting to know what a roughing business is. <laughs> it's it's a great. Oh, I love the cultural nuances. Hopefully, we'll get you back in the future. I'm sure you've got a few more projects in the pipeline. Thank you, Perry. Yes. Well, thank you, James. It was a pleasure to be on and really great to catch up with you. We'll put a link to the book on episode 791 at superfastbusiness.com. Until next time. Discover how to build your business super fast. Check out superfastbusiness.com. Thank you.